Let's open our Bibles to the seventh chapter of Romans and see if we can finish the chapter. There's a lot of repetition in the verses of 15 through 17, 19 through 21. Hopefully we can cover these verses. Let me try to make this passage understandable. This passage is not to justify sinful living because you go into it and find that Paul cannot do the things that he wants to do and that he does the things that he hates. That is only sometimes does that happen. It only happens enough for Paul to know that he can't keep the law perfectly. It's not that he's living in sin every day and you should never let anyone use Romans 7 that way or use it that way yourself. Why do we have this chapter, this whole chapter, in the epistle to the Romans that deals with the law of Moses and the law so repetitively over and over again? Why do we have it? Because it was written to a congregation somewhat different than ours. And we want to recognize that and get from what is written by the Holy Spirit the intent originally intended and then make an application to us that we can live by. But the church at Rome had Jews in it and Gentile proselytes to the Jews' religion, both of which highly exalted and adored the law of Moses. That was their manual of religion. And for Paul to come by and say some of the things that he has said in this epistle would raise suspicions, would raise accusations against him, that he was throwing away the law of God. But he was not doing that. The issue in Romans 7 is Paul defending himself and defending God's law as being a good thing in its proper place, but that it can never justify anyone and it can never sanctify anyone. To justify a man is to take away their guilt and condemnation so they can go to heaven. To sanctify a man is to take away his sin and make him holy so that he's fit for God's use. It can't do either because there is this terrible principle or power still left in us that loves sin. And that's that's the lesson. He's going to exalt the law and he's going to show a conflict that's in him that makes the law insufficient to save us. So we need a Savior outside the law the Lord Jesus Christ. As we get into Romans 7, it's verses 7 through 23 that we need to deal with the most carefully to understand this. And I believe that the best help is to start out in verse 23 and just look at what it says as Paul tells you what he's writing. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law sin? Well, the reason, the reason Paul would put that question there, that instructional question, that rhetorical question, is to tell you what he's dealing with. See, we don't have any great obsession with the law like those Jews and proselytes did. So we wouldn't respond that way to what Paul had said. We would respond to what Paul had said, Thank you, Lord! When we read, you're not under the law, but you're under grace, we respond with, thank you, Lord. They responded with, what's wrong with the law? Are you trying to make it sin? God forbid. Nay, it is not sin. I wouldn't have even known sin if it hadn't been for that law. 
And he goes on to explain that all the way down through the end of the chapter. The issue that you want to get in your mind is not Paul all of a sudden taking this long rabbit trail that Christians can't live without sinning. No, he just realizes that he's got Jews and proselytes and he needs to defend the law and put it in its proper place and explain why it can't justify. And it can't justify not because of its defects, it can't justify because of your defects. It's, O wretched man that I am, not O wretched law that it is. The issue is the wretchedness of us in the old natures that we have from our first birth. Watch Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. That is not a proper question. God forbid the law is not sin. Nay, no, don't think that way. Why so much about the law? Because he's going to defend the law, and he's going to defend what he has said about the law, and he's going to accuse what makes the law ineffectual, and that is our sins. Watch. Is the law sin? God forbid. I had not known sin but by the law. I'm in Romans 7, 7. Look at the first two words of verse 8. But sin... Look, but sin. See, but sin. Sin is the problem. The law isn't the problem, my Jewish and Gentile proselyte friends. Sin is the problem. Verses 10 and 11. The commandment which was ordained to life. God gave the law of Moses and it was ordained to life. It was a conditional system of works for eternal life. I found it to be unto death. For sin. Look at the first two words of verse 12. For sin. See, the first two words of 8 are but sin. The first two words of 12 are for sin. Verse 11, I mean, for sin. Verse 12. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was the, I'm in verse 13 now. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin. How many times does he need to do this? We're about halfway through them. He just keeps saying, but sin, for sin, but sin. God ordained the law for a good reason. The law is holy. The law is good. But the law worked death in me. Why? Because of sin, not because of the law. The defect is not in the law. The law is holy, just, good, and spiritual. The defect is in us. And that is what, that's the whole rest of the chapter. That is the whole rest of the chapter. The defect is in us, not the law. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. That's where we're, we're going to start with this verse today. But I am carnal, sold under sin. The problem is not with the law. The problem was with Paul. He couldn't keep the law because he had a part of him that brought him into unwilling slavery at times. His flesh would sometimes rule and make him sin, not all the time, just once in a while, to let him know this law can't justify you. Verse 17. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin. There's but sin again. Verse 20. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now I'm harping on all this. Because I want you to know that from verse 7 
down through verse 25, the points are very simple. And they're not how they're commonly, and it's, they're not how this chapter is commonly used. It is simply exonerating the law of God in order to righteously satisfy the Jewish mindset and the Gentile proselyte mindset and point out that the law, while good, while given by God and ordained for life, while just, while holy, while spiritual, while something Paul delighted in, it could not justify and it cannot sanctify because we have a sin principle within us that will not let us do it, no matter how much we read it, no matter how much we love it, no matter how much we delight in it, after our inward man, there's an old man in us, it's in our members, that cannot keep it, and that is Romans 7. So he leads you to a place of hopelessness. If I have cast all my hope on Mount Sinai and the law of Moses, and I have a sin principle in me that can't keep it perfectly, I'm doomed. Not because of the law having problems, but because I have problems. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Not who shall deliver me from the law, but from this body that sins against that law. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. That's the, that's the chapter. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. In my renewed mind, which I have by regeneration, I know that the law is holy, just, good, and spiritual. I delight in it. I love its commandments. I know those commandments please God. I know those commandments give a man a prosperous life on earth. I know all those things. I delight in them. And I intend to keep every precept of God's law in my renewed mind. But I have another law in my members. And my members will sometimes get the better of me and drag me down and cause me to sin unwillingly. I hate what I end up doing, therefore I confess it. And see, it is this kind of a conflict, and when you meet a child of God that walks with the Lord, you will be able to hear in their conversation a conflict like Romans 7. When you see a person that's living in sin, there is no way for you to make a judgment, well, this is someone like Romans 7. No, it isn't. When you find someone living in sin and that doesn't talk about this conflict and being taken captive sometimes by their flesh, they're just captive of their flesh all the time, then you've got an unregenerate reprobate, most likely, or you've got someone that's a belly worshiper. Because a child of God puts up a fight. He has a mind that is committed to the law of God. And so when he sins, he hates it, he abhors it, he confesses it, and he recommits himself hourly or daily to go back to the law of God and keep it. And he puts up a fight. We're going to have warfare described here, but a war can't exist when there's only one one party warring. That isn't war. That's occupation. That's slavery. But Paul's going to describe a warfare. And the warfare there is right at the end of the chapter. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. My flesh only does evil. My spirit only desires righteousness. That is what ordinarily governs my behavior. But sometimes my flesh gets the better of me. Just enough for me to be reminded that, oh, wretched man that I am, without Jesus Christ, I'm lost. And then he's going to go into Romans chapter 8, which I believe will be more delightful to us. But he needs Romans chapter 7 to have satisfied the confused, accusatory minds of the Jews 
by the way he had talked about the law in chapters 2 through 6. I hope, I hope that helped. I'm just going to say some things to you about this chapter. Just listen, then we'll go, we'll quickly go through the verses. This chapter is not to justify carnal living at all. The law is good and holy by its design. Its design was to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Verse 13. The law cannot justify, for we cannot keep it perfectly. And in order to be justified by the law, you have to keep it perfectly. The law can't sanctify or make us holy because we cannot keep it perfectly. Paul's consent in verse 16. He said, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. What he's saying is, when I measure my sins, I measure them by the law. And I abhor things that I end up doing. And by so doing that, I'm consenting that the law is good. See, he's telling you, he's writing to a Jewish audience, I consent that the law is good. But I can't keep it perfectly. And he doesn't say it, but everybody knows it. Neither can you keep it perfectly. Because everyone knows that what Paul's describing here is the life of every regenerate child of God. They can't keep it perfectly. And if they run to Mount Sinai for their hiding place, as we sing in our song, Hail Sovereign Love, there's no shelter there. We've got to run to Mount Zion in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's plenty of shelter there in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's great desire to not sin proved that he thought the law was good because he measured sin by the law. He was declaring the law is good. His intention not to sin, but yet sinning anyway, proved that he had a sin principle in him. When I say a sin principle, I am talking about a power and a principle of evil that is inside our bodies. We got that from sinning in the Garden of Eden. So that we have a depraved nature that loves sin. The lust, our flesh craves things without regard to God's limitation. Our eyes crave things without regard to God's limitations. Our pride rears its ugly head and wants to exalt itself against God's limitations. That principle, power, force, inclination, propensity in each of us toward evil is the sin nature of our old man. And Paul's teaching us here that we've got that which makes the law far too high to ever justify us because we can't keep it perfectly. Because that sin principle reach up and grab our ankles and rip us back down to reality that we have sin within us. And a wretched men that we are because of that sin principle. Paul's not describing himself before regeneration. He's describing himself after regeneration, right when he was penning this epistle. Because he uses the present tense Over and over and over and over, right down through the end of the chapter. More could be said on that, but it's not necessary. I don't think anyone in here believes that he's writing about what he was like before he was regenerated or converted. Paul is not teaching that the Christian life is hopeless and sin unavoidable, but that evil is present with us. It's not ruling us, it's present with us. So that he found himself tainted at times by sin, getting involved in his Mental commitment to keep the law of God. I'm going to obey God's word. After Wednesday night, you know, I hope that we all were committed to wanting to honor our parents. 
You should have had a heart and a mind that when you heard and saw the Word of God presented that way, you wanted to do something for your parents. I'm not going to go too far in this little illustration. But as soon as this service was over and I was able to get away, my parents had got away before I was able to get to them. I wanted to quit in the middle and jump over that first pew and embrace them both. But I went racing to their house afterwards, and as soon as I got in the front door, my dad said something to me, and I responded in such a way that my dear wife, that never says anything, said, Why'd you say that? Isn't that pitiful? I was there for 90 minutes to love on my mom and dad. It's all I wanted to do. And that's all I did. But you know what? With the best of intentions and the greatest of zeal, there is still evil present with me. Just like there is with you. And my dad says something, and in my reaction to him, (laughs) you know, it was a modest offense. But she was right. And I was mortified. And I was fulfilling Romans 7. Now, some people interpret Romans 7 as, well, I just gave up and unloaded on my dad and let fly with 53 years of bitterness and call that being in Romans 7. No, I immediately was grieved in my heart, told the Lord, forgive me, and let's make a better end of this evening than its beginning. And for the next 90 minutes, we had a wonderful time together. And that's what we're all supposed to do by putting up a warfare. But every time we try to do something good, evil is going to be present with us while we're in these bodies. And death becomes a glorious event when you understand that the sin principle is in this thing, this body. Death becomes good because we get to get rid of the sin principle within us. The moment that we die, your spirit will be free from this evil is present with me. And you'll be in heaven and be able to glorify God and obey Him and keep all His commandments for the rest of your eternity. Isn't that wonderful? If we understand this correctly. Sorry about that little illustration. And oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. Evil is present with me. Have you ever intended that you're going to go out to dinner or you're going to do something with someone? Those of you that talk a lot, I'll just try to pretend that I know what you must go through. Those of you that talk a lot, you want you make a commitment on the way there. I'm going to be sober. I'm going to be grave. I'm going to be solemn. I'm going to be everything that the Bible describes in the way of temperate with my speech And my spirit, wife, help me, kick me, elbow me, if I do anything that's not solemn and grave, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, during that evening, something's going to happen. You're going to get provoked, and you're going to say something or do something, and you're going to be grieved. But brethren, though we know that evil is present with us, what do we do with the evening? Do we continue to press on and make a warfare against that propensity within us? for foolish talking and jesting, and when we get home, or even then, do we confess that sin to the Lord? Yes. That's victorious Christian living. That's being blameless in the law of God. Without confessing your sins, you're not blameless. No one's blameless. But we confess our sins, and we delight in the law of God after the inward man, and we say, Lord, I love being sober and grave. I'm sorry that my flesh gets the better of me at times. Do you know what? Does he know that about you? Does Psalm 103 say that he, like as a father pitieth his children, the Lord pitieth them that fear him? He remembereth their frame that they are dust. 
He knows that. Thank you, Lord. But we confess it and we go on. Paul wanted to exonerate the law. Paul sought to blame sin, not the law, for its inability to justify. Let me say it for the third time. It wasn't a defect in the law of Moses. It was a defect in Paul, and it's a defect in you and a defect in me, that we have this wretched body that rears its ugly head and wants to break the law of God, even though in our minds we are fully resolved that we're not going to do that again. Did David ever say, I'm so tired of sinning with my mouth, I'm not going to say a word. What does he say next? Did a fire burn within him? Do you know what he was clamping his hand over? The raging fire of hell. Does James 3 say that the tongue is set on fire of hell? He said a fire burned within me. Do you know that feeling? Then we go home and we confess it. We don't confess it lightly. We confess it, Lord, give me the strength to do better than that. Lord, I hate that because I love thy law and I want to keep thy law. But I have this power in my members that keeps me from keeping your law perfectly. He delighted in the law, verse 22 tells us. And he identified these two natures that make war. Let's look at the verses. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. Now look at, he uses the plural pronoun, there we, and he's not going to use it again. Because he's focusing on himself. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. You Jews and you Gentile proselytes and me. We all know that the law came from God. It is divine wisdom. It is heavenly instruction. And that is what the word spiritual means. The word spiritual in verse 14 is the same type of adjectives as used in verse 12. The law is holy. The law is just. The law is good. The law is spiritual. It is heavenly, divine, godly wisdom. We know that. I agree with you about that, you Jews and proselytes. But I am carnal, sold under sin. Not sold to sin, sold under it. And he's going to explain how he sold under it. Paul didn't sin all the time. He is going to describe being sold under sin as having evil present with him. So that he can't perfectly, though he doesn't use the word perfectly, that is to be understood. How is it understood? Because of every other chapter in the New Testament tells us that Paul was not sinning all the time. In chapter 6 he said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. In chapter 8 he's going to say, those who walk after the spirit and not after the flesh are those that are free from condemnation. So in the two chapters, as I told you last Lord's Day, in the two chapters that sandwich Romans 7, Paul himself declared that a child of God does not live in sin. So when he says he's sold under sin, he just means that there is this force inside him that at times takes him an unwilling captive. A bond slave. See, a hired servant is a man that goes and employs himself with another man. He goes and says, I will do this for you for this wage. But Paul said, I'm not a hired. Sin is not that kind of an employer of me. Sin is my bondmaster. It's evil with me that sometimes gets the better of me against my will. See, a bond slave is there because he has to be there. He's a prisoner. He's a captive of his master. 
And that's what Paul is referring to in this verse 14. That while we all understand that the law is spiritual, it's divine wisdom from heaven, it's holy, just, and good, as I described it in verse 12, but the problem is with me because I am carnal. I, we sometimes use the expression carnal Christian. Now, a carnal Christian is a Christian who has fallen into sin, and instead of being grieved over it and going home and confessing it and recommitting himself to living spiritually, he stays in it. So he lives the rest of that day in it. And the next day he doesn't confess that sin, but he sins again, and this time with less compunction of conscience. That's a carnal Christian. They stay in sin. The sin can be doctrinal, like all the errors in doctrine and practice of so many churches, or it can be personal in the way we conduct ourselves in our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. But a real Christian, a sincere Christian, when he sins, confesses that sin and recommits himself to follow Christ. And he may do it hourly. He may do it daily. But he doesn't hang there. When Paul says, I am carnal, Paul was not saying, I live in sin. He's going to tell the Corinthians they did. And he does it in 1 Corinthians 1, 2 and 1 Corinthians 3, 1. Ye are yet carnal. And it's the reason I can't preach to you the things that I would otherwise preach to you. I have to go back and give you milk. Like he tells the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, 5, verses 12 through 14. So here in this 14th verse, we know that the law is spiritual. Paul puts the law up where it belongs. It's a spiritual good thing from God, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I have the problem. I have a flesh principle within me that loves sin. Carnal is a word describing the body. Carnal is a word that describes flesh. Carnal is something of this world, while spiritual is something of that world. Spiritual is something of the unseen world. Carnal is something of the seen world. I have this fleshly body that because of Adam in the Garden of Eden, loves sin. And sometimes it takes me captive. If we don't make this division, then we have Paul living in sin all the time. But when Paul says he was carnal, he just has this carnal principle, and he goes on and explains it. Evil is present with me. Not evil dominates me, not evil controls me, not I'm always giving myself to evil, but I have it with me. It accompanies me everywhere I go because it's in these members, and I can't get rid of these members until I die. Paul and the Romans knew that the law was a spiritual blessing from God, but he wanted to tell them the law's failure was not in the law itself, but was in him and his sin-controlled old nature, And he said that by the words, I am carnal, sold under sin. You're supposed to see, you haven't been to a slave market recently. They would understand that. Sold under sin. Sometimes I'm up there on the slave trading block, and sin reaches up and gets a hold of me and takes me captive and makes me its slave. But once in a while, just enough to prove to Paul that evil was present with him and that he had a wretched body and that he couldn't keep God's law. Therefore, he better not look to it for salvation. He better look way beyond it and way above it to the Lord Jesus Christ. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? It's the 24th verse. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. We're going to end up in the same place as chapter 6. We've just taken an aside for the Jewish mind. Romans 6... 
ends this way, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ my Lord. Romans 7 ends, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Because Paul's using different means to get us all to the place where we learn salvation is of the Lord. It is God giving salvation by Jesus Christ. Not a hope anywhere else. Certainly not the law of Moses. Paul was not only carnal, and Paul was not mostly carnal. Paul had a carnal principle, power or force, with him in his members that would take him captive at times. That is what he means there in that 14th verse. He was not a slave in any way to contradict what he has taught in chapter 6. Do you remember in chapter 6, verse 16, to the end of the chapter, Paul taught this analogy? Two analogies in Romans 6. Verses 1 through 14 or so were about baptism. Verses 16 through the the end of the chapter, the 23rd verse, are about slavery. And he says in verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And then in verse 22 he says, Now being made free from sin, see it doesn't entirely control us. We've been made free from it. We've been made free from its bondage of a system, We've been made free from its total dominion because we have a regenerate new nature. And because we have been delivered from the law in the sense of our religious system designed to save us. We've been free. Being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For Paul to write that in chapter 6, when he says in chapter 7, I am sold under sin, he can't mean that he is a total slave to sin. He means that there is a power in him that can sometimes take him as a slave. Because all of chapter 6 was telling you, don't yield your members as members of, or instruments of unrighteousness. So you're, you're supposed to have read chapter 6 before you get to chapter 7. Now that's very basic, isn't it? You shouldn't go diving into Romans 7 without having read Romans 6. And if you've read Romans 6, then you know that the slavery that Paul's mentioning right here in verse 14 is limited. It takes him captive sometimes because of this principle in his members that love sin. Verse 15 through 17, he's going to describe what he means. For that which I do, I allow not. There was part of Paul that did not allow some of the things he ended up doing. That's why I gave you a couple of illustrations of when you commit that I'm going to live a certain way and I'm not going to allow myself to do that any longer. And as you do that, that's a child of God committing to please his Father in heaven. But the sin principle inside you is going to grab you from time to time and remind you that you cannot do it perfectly without the power of the Holy Spirit and you cannot save yourself without the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're constantly... Wretched man that I am, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. It constantly puts the child of God who understands this chapter in a spirit of thankfulness to the God of heaven. Verses 15 through 17. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, 
I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And this is where a child of God can get comfort if they'll read the words and trust them. I am fully committed to keeping God's law. I delight in the law of God after my inward man. But I end up sometimes doing things that I don't allow, and I end up not doing things that I require of myself, and sometimes I even do those things that I hate. But now, if I do something that I hate, then it's not really me doing it. Because I am committed to keeping the law of God perfectly. So then I find something else is with me. Sin that dwelleth in me. Verse 17. A sin principle that is in all of our members. And Paul is making the distinction that if my mind is committed to keeping the law of God, let's talk about honoring parents and guarding our speech and being sober. Just think of whatever examples you want, but I'll give you those three. When we commit to do that, that is obeying God. And yet we find at times we're pulled away from doing it, and we we hate what happened, we don't allow it, we confess it, we regret it, we resent it. It shows that there is something in us contrary to us. And so we have this schizophrenic, pardon the use of that term, conflict of these two natures within us. The nature that wants to please God, which we have by our new birth, and this old one that's in our members that loves sin. And so it gets the better of us at times. But we prove that we're following God by committing our mind to the Lord and following Him as well as we can and confessing that sin whenever it does reach up and grab us. We confess it and we recommit, I love the law of God. And when you talk to a person, you can find out if they're going through that struggle that way. Because they will, they will confess that sin gets the better of them, but you will always hear their desire to live righteously. You will always hear their ambition to keep the law of God. You will hear their commitment that the law of God is delightful and that they want to keep it. And it is the only way to live. And they desire it above anything else. But then they will admit, sometimes I don't do it. And I hate myself for doing that. And I find that that the myself that I hate is evil present with me. Because my mind is committed against that very thing. Now Paul is explaining all this not so much to give us an explanation of the conflict in our natures, which is also described in Galatians chapter 5, about the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, so you cannot do the things that ye would perfectly. No one can do perfectly what the Spirit tells them to do and what they want to do because the flesh is fighting a war against the Spirit all the time. But when a person comes into these verses and understands that Paul is trying to lift up the law and explain, my Jewish and Gentile proselyte friends, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I love the law of God. It's spiritual, it's holy, it's just, it's good. It was ordained to life, but I have found it to be death because of a principle in me that the things I don't want to do as measured by the law, I end up doing. The things I hate as measured by the law, I end up doing. Therefore, I can't keep the law. So even though I know the law is holy and I know the law was ordained to life and I know the law is spiritual, I am hopeless if I just measure myself by the law. 
I need a Savior. Verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Do you know there's part of you that doesn't have anything good? And there's part of you that doesn't have anything bad. The old man doesn't have anything good. And you know him. A a Christian who examines himself knows about this evil that's present with him. See, Paul knew it. I know that in me, a part of me, but not all of me, in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me in my mind. I've got a will. I want to do God's word. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Now, are you going to read that and say Paul never performed God's word? No, I could never perform God's word perfectly. That's all that it means. I can't perform it perfectly. Verse 19, for the good that I would, and now he repeats himself from verses 15 through 17, just reminding these people of the struggle they go through so that they're all admitting to themselves, you know what? I understand, Paul, now that we don't want to be under the law. We want to be under grace. I understand, Paul, now, that over there in Romans chapter 6, he said, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Boy, the more he's talking, the more I realize I have that same conflict, and I know what Moses taught, that if I ever break the law of God once, I'm condemned. I'm getting Paul's message. Now, he's just repeating himself to describe that conflict for his Jewish audience to realize, okay, Paul's not all that bad. Look at all the good things he has said about the law. It's holy, it's just, it's good, it's spiritual. It was ordained to life. He delights in it after his inward man. But he's describing the conflict that we all have. We can't keep it perfectly. Therefore, it can't justify us. It can't sanctify us. We need help. He's he's building up to the wretched man statement. Verse 20, Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it but sin that dwelleth in me. Same thing he said in verse 17. He is repeating himself. He is convincing these people about the two natures that they have, and he's convincing us of the two natures we have. We cannot do the things that we want to perfectly because there's two parts in us. And the part that Paul has committed is the governing part of his life, but sometimes that flesh is strong enough to reach up and bring him into captivity momentarily where he then confesses it repents and recommits himself to follow the Lord. And we all live that way. If you give up and don't fight, and if you're not confessing your sins daily, and if you're not recommitting yourself to the law of God daily, then you are a carnal Christian way beyond Paul ever designed Romans 7 to give you leave for. You are to be putting up a warfare. Verse 21, I find then a law. I, there is a rule that governs me. I find a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. No matter how noble my intentions, no matter how zealous or diligent my zeal, I find that I have evil that is constantly reaching for me to pull me back and pull me down, and it gets me from time to time. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's his regenerate new man. I love God's law. When you read God's law, doesn't it... Isn't Psalm 19 true? Rejoicing the heart? God's rules, if our nation operated by them, and if homes operated by them, and businesses operated by the rules of God's Word, doesn't it rejoice your heart? You read it and you say, that's the way things ought to be. 
I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members. There is a rule. He calls it a law here. It's the principle that I'm calling principle. It's the power that I'm calling power. It's the force that I'm calling force. It's the propensity that I'm calling propensity. He calls a law. I have a law inside me that will not let me keep God's law perfectly, no matter how much I delight in it and how much I want it. And the Jews are all sitting there. They don't want to nod their heads and say amen very loudly because they all took their confidence in the law that they had kept it well enough. And Paul's pointing out that I delight in as much as any one of you. We all know that it's spiritual. It's a tremendous blessing God gave us. It's holy. It's just. It's good. But I can't keep it perfectly. Because I have a law in my members that though I delight in it, that wars against that law of my mind. When my mind is committed to keeping God's word, I have a law in my members that will not let me do it perfectly. And it brings me into captivity. There's the soul under sin. It brings me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. The captivity is momentarily. The captivity is daily. The captivity is not for the rest of your life or I'm going to take five years off and serve sin. I hope you understand that. The captivity of verse 23 is the soul under sin of verse 14. And Paul tells us in other places, I keep under my body, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Does that sound like a man who is under the total dominion of sin? Not a chance. Paul would say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul would say, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But once in a while, we're pulled down. Overall, Paul's life was totally changed. Overall, our lives are totally changed. But at times, sin reaches up and brings us into captivity for the moment. But what do we do about the moment? We fight it, we resent it, we confess it. (coughs) We recommit to the Lord and we get away from whatever feeds that part of our flesh. If you feed your flesh, it will get strong enough to pull you down and dominate you. We feed the spiritual new man. By hanging around our brethren that love the Lord. By reading God's word. By spending time in prayer. By godly music. By being in the house of God. Where we get stirred up to live godly lives. We feed our spirit. We deprive our flesh by staying away from ungodly music. Ungodly television. Ungodly friends. And any input that would strengthen our old man. That is how we put up a warfare. That is a child of God. The child of God doesn't forfeit or give up the battle. He wages war. And the Lord will give you strength when you're waging war. Paul had strength. Paul put up with so much opposition in his body. He had a a thorn in the flesh from the devil by God's permission. He had so many enemies in the ministry. He had so many church problems. He had so much conflict in his life. And yet look at his victorious life. How did he do it? Because God strengthened him. Because he fed his new man and starved his old man. You've got two dogs. I don't want to use that one. The new man should never be called a dog. But you know, if you've got two dogs and you feed one and starve the other, the one you feed is going to eat the other one. And if you feed your old man, it's going to eat your new man. Your new man's going to become so weak, even the Spirit of God is hindered in your life. Because you can quench or grieve the Spirit of God. This is a war. We want to fight it. 
It's the lust in our flesh war against the law of our mind. We can't, we can't win the war perfectly. There's enough of that sin principle left there so that we love the Lord Jesus Christ a whole lot more when we measure ourselves by the law of God and realize we can't keep it. God could have saved us when Jesus died on the cross. You know, there's all these different ways that God could have saved us so that the sin principle was taken out of our bodies. Is he going to take the sin principle out of our bodies someday? Sure. Could he have taken it out earlier than he has? Sure. Why didn't he? So that we'll thank God always, because we will learn what wretched creatures we are. That's why. That no matter how much we hear the Word of God presented to us in the very best terms, we still find a law in our members that wants to sin. And know that if God holds us accountable for every one of our sins without a Savior, we are doomed. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I hope every one of you do hear. That's why when we have conversations, they should be about things of godliness. Because we're delighting in the law of God after the inward man, and we want to share that delight with each other so that we stir up each other's delight after the law of God in our inward man. But I see another law. There's another principle. There's another force. There's another man inside me that wars against that law of my mind. And it brings me into captivity, the law of sin which is in my members. And all he's saying is there's enough there to know that I am condemned by God's law. Verse 14 is the same as this verse. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. It brings me into captivity enough to know that the law condemns me. O wretched man that I am. Not O wretched law that Moses gave us. Not O wretched law that God sent down from heaven. But, oh, wretched man that I am. Because when we look into that law and we rejoice and we share with each other, look at what God said should happen in this particular case. Didn't we rejoice about how plain, powerful, extensive, and thorough the teaching about honoring parents is from Wednesday night? But we trembled and we committed and we said, that is the truth. Boy, if children obeyed their and honored their parents the way that was just described to us, Family life would be utopia. Family life would be heaven on earth. We delight in it. But then we find in our members little things that well up in a second of time. Like Wednesday night, an hour later. Unbelievable. Oh, wretched man that I am! Exclamation point. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Not who shall deliver me from the law. Because see, the thing that was, the thing that was confusing these Jews was Paul kept saying, we're dead to the law. I don't want to be under the law. The law is bondage. Now he's explaining where that death really was. And he explained it all the way through these last 15 verses. It's in his body. It's in his bodily members that cannot keep and will not keep the law. Perfectly. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Though I delight in the law of God, Moses' law, though I esteem it holy, just, good, and spiritual, though I know it was ordained for eternal life, I can't keep it. Because there's another law inside me that won't let me keep it perfectly. Who's going to deliver me? Who's going to deliver me? 
we sing a song, who? 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 It is the Lord. It is the Lord and He alone. Man has no glory of his own. Praise God. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is one man that kept the law of God perfectly. The Lord Jesus Christ. In honoring parents. In being sober and grave. He kept it perfectly. And his righteousness is ascribed to us by justification. And the representation of the second Adam. So then with the mind. I myself serve the law of God. You Jews that think I have thrown the law away, oh, I haven't. I am committed to keeping every principle of the law of God that is brought into the New Testament. I'm going to keep every bit of it. But I also know that there is a law in my flesh that is going to keep loving sin until I am delivered out of this body of flesh. I know that it's going to grab me once in a while, but I'm not going to give in to it, and I'm going to confess it whenever I fail. And fall victim to it. Whenever it takes me into captivity, I'll confess it and recommit myself because I, I am committed. I have a law present with me that delights in the law of God. I have a law present with me that delights in sin in my members. But I am choosing this new man and that is the way I live. If you thought I hated the law, I don't hate the law. I live by the law of God. But once in a while my flesh gets the better of me and takes me into captivity. But that is not the way I'm going to live. I am going to live according to the law of God. But since I can't live according to the law of God perfectly... I'm so thankful that I have a Savior in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen Amen and amen.